trigger warning. This program contains discussions about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse as recounted by adult survivors from their childhood experiences. The purpose of this program is to promote healing among survivors of childhood sexual abuse, primarily with men. Some of these discussions, however, may trigger past trauma. This program also includes explicit language. Did is then they started to take them to these parties up in Columbus, and there would be four or five guys. Most of them were all college age, and we would line up, and then the guests would come in and they'd walk down the line and they would look us over. I could remember them um, like checking us out, asking us questions, grabbing our muscles, touching our chests, and stuff like that. Then they would go into a back room and then they would place a silent auction. And so I walked to the car, and as I walked to the car, I remember telling myself, well, if mom doesn't believe me, who's going to believe me? Is that children want to be heard, and they want to be believed. I fall upon my face in disgrace. Hello, I'm Craig Hiding, and welcome to a conversation with John Michael Lander, a survivor of male childhood sexual assault and CSA activist sponsored by the men of Voices Beyond Assault. I'm Laura Troy. As most of us here today, Craig and I are also survivors. Voices Beyond Assault hosts these monthly programs because we understand that men who suffer sexual assault are not always hurt. We want to amplify their voices, empower them to heal, and provide the resources needed. And now let me introduce our guest today, John Michael Lander. At 14, John Michael was an accomplished diver destined to rise to the world stage in the Olympics. But soon after, the adults put in charge of his training began grooming him and trafficking him in all into a life of sexual abuse. Thus began a secret life for John Michael filled with shame and guilt while still managing to win gold medals at the Norway and Danish Cups. John Michael chronicled his story in two novels, Surface Tension and Cracked Surface, and he has been worked tirelessly to raise awareness about sexual predators, the long-term effects of sexual abuse and survival. A certified trainer and life coach with the Self-Talk Institution, John Michael has been leading the way across the country with his writings, public speaking, workshops, and many interviews. It's the story of John Michael's triumph, healing, and helping others, We'll focus on today, and we are very honored to have you join us today. Thank you, John Michael. Yeah, John Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I am humbled with that introduction. That's that's powerful. Thank you. And we want to ask you a lot about your story. Right, you have so much that you have been mm -hmm. telling. So, could you give us just a little bit of background on, you know, your story a little bit? You've been anything you would like to add about. <laughs> the intro we gave you we'd love to hear about well definitely uh again that intro i i, I can't wait to hear that back again and that makes me feel proud um I, I will say that you know i started diving when i was 12 but by the time i was 14 i had qualified for the junior olympics and i took eighth at the junior olympics which was a, a big accomplishment for me because i was coming from a farm town in ohio and what happened is that there it was a uh, an article in the newspaper ran, and a lawyer supposedly had saw it. And what he did is he contacted my mother, and so they started to meet privately for a couple of months. And during these meetings, he basically was telling my mother that 
uh, he had a group of professionals that could help me achieve my dream of going to the Olympics and getting a college scholarship and all this incredible stuff that they were willing to do this if she would allow this to happen. And why this was happening, we also learned later on in retrospect that this lawyer had already approached the team, my team, and talked to the institution there and, and told them that they could bring in uh, sponsorship money and would be willing to sponsor me if they would let this happen. And so they agreed to it. And then he went and got, uh, he met with my mother and basically groomed her and got her to share the, her advice and sure, okay, that's fine. And then and only then did he approach me. So what I call this is the predatory grooming trifecta. And that's where the predator grooms the institution first, the parent second, and then the child, which allows this predator to go undetected for years. And that's exactly what happened. And so when he started to meet with me, he started to share with me that this was the only way that I was ever going to make it to the Olympics because my parents did not have the financial backing for me. But these professional people would be able to do this. And it was this whole grooming process. It took several months of just meeting with him at dinners and, and maybe go see a show or something like that. And it, was, it, and it seemed very, very normal in a way. And, and he really played on the fact that this was the only way that I could go forward. And so I eventually said, okay. And he had me sign a contract with him. And basically there were three things in the contract that I had to fulfill. And that was to uh, dive as well as I could and win as many titles as I could um, to be polite and courteous to the professionals so that they're not upset with me and to do my best in school. Those are the only three things. And later on, I also found out that from my mother, he had also kind of did a scare tactic with her that if we went ahead and did this, my parents would be responsible for any money that the professionals donated to the family if anything fell apart. So basically, I would go see a professional. That professional, whatever profession he was in, would turn around and help my parents in certain ways. Doctor's appointments, eye exams, ear exams, anything like that. Uh, my sister had a terrible sledding accident. I'd have a reconstructive surgery in her chin. Everything was taken care of. No money for my parents. The professionals did this. And so that is the whole crux behind it. And that, that, that's what put me into this, this circle of professional men. And that's basically how it started. So when did the actual abuse start in that process? I mean, and uh, can you describe that a little bit without getting into too much detail? Sure. Um, what basically it started very slow and very subtle. Um, the lawyer then introduced me to one of the other professionals and it'd be like we'd have dinner, just the three of us. And then it was slowly introduced to the, the, these other professionals. And then it, this was all happening when I was about 15. And so what had happened as they did is then they started to take me to these parties up in Columbus. And there would be four or five guys. Most of them were college age. And we would line up and then the guests would come in and they'd walk down the line and they would look us over. And while they were looking us over, we were in costumes, basically, that the host wanted us to wear. And they always put me in a white Speedo. I never understood why, but I just thought because I was the diver and I was the youngest. I was still in high school. The other guys were in college and they would go down and I could remember them um, like checking us out, asking us questions, grabbing our muscles, touching our chests and stuff like that. Then they would go into a back room and then they would place a silent auction. On a silent bid on which boy that they wanted. 
And then the highest bid got whatever boy that they chose. And then there was this other incentive where the highest, the boy who had the highest money brought in got special gifts as well. So there was like this competition between the boys and the competition between the the, the guests. And this is how this worked. And then, you know, the, the guests would, would take the boy, they would go out on the town. Sometimes they would spend the weekend with them and then they would rotate us. And so anybody had a chance to get the same person. That's terrific. There's just so many layers to this story of just how you are being commodified and objectified and just made into like this plaything instead of the human that you are. Um, you know, during this process, are your parents aware of what is going on? Were you able to tell your parents? Like, right. And and that's another crust of the story that's kind of confusing to me to this day. Uh, I believe my mother knew because she already met with a lawyer and she was the one who had to have me at the right place at the right time, dressed the correct way, and to go. She had to have me prepared and ready. And then they would come and pick me up from the farm or they would meet at a certain place. And she was the one that always took care of that. The question was, did my father know? And there were times I wondered about if he did know, but he sat there and he would watch these cars come and pick me up. And there were there were little things that he would say along the way, sort of like, you know, he'd throw Bible verses out that if you lay with a man, you're going to be, you're an abomination and you are an abomination. He would always tell me that um, since I have done had done this, that I would take a wife or a woman with me to hell. And did I really want to do that? But it was never talking to me about what was actually happening. No one spoke to me. There was one time I did how my mother, and I, I remember it was on my 16th birthday, car came to pick me up and I told my mother I didn't want to go. And she, she was like, what do you mean? You have to go, he's here. And I said, I don't want to go. And it finally got to the point that I blurted out that he touches me. And she looked at me and I thought, oh my God, this is it. She's finally going to get it and they're going to do something and they're going to help me. Her face changed. And then she slapped me across the face and she said, it is not nice to make up lies about people. If anything ever happened, it must have been your fault. This person is a pillar of the community. Everyone knows who he is and likes him. So you go and have dinner with him and come back and tell me all the things that you have for dinner. And that was it. And so I walked to the car. And as I walked to the car, I remember telling myself, well, if mom doesn't believe me, who's going to believe me? And that was reinforced throughout the, the grooming process because the um, the lawyer would remind me that uh, we're only doing this for you because we see that you're the only one on the team that can go to the Olympics. And, um, and you don't want to tell anybody about this because nobody will believe you. And that's how this whole thing started to grow. Uh, I want to go back to the auctioning process because I just think sure. that's just amazing. How, I mean, do you think, did your father drive you to the auctioning process? Did, he, did you ever tell them about this process and, and how many boys were involved? And did you ever talk to the other boys or anything? It's just amazing to me that this even goes on. I would be picked up from the farmhouse by the lawyer and taken to the party, which is was usually like an hour away from our house. So my father never dropped me off anywhere like that. Uh, there were usually about four or five boys at the parties. And they, again, they were usually college kids because this group, um, we were called, it was called the Miller, Miller, oh, I shouldn't say that, but who cares? The Miller Farm is what they called it. And we were the ponies. And if you were an older boy who was, there was a couple of grad students there, they were the Colts. 
so that's how they uh, determined who we were. And I, I was the youngest, so I was the pony, of course. And um, I did become really good friends with an older guy who was a college student, and he, he kind of protected me throughout the process. And he would like pull me aside and say, just do this and don't say that, don't do this, just follow my lead. And that's basically how I got through and, and dealt with everything. Uh, no one talked about it. We never said exactly what was going on. We just, it seemed like everyone knew and it was just this normal thing that we do every weekend. Did you feel physically threatened or was there like a, a, a air of, of, you know, fear in you if you didn't comply? I mean, that, that you'd be oh, yeah. hurt. Always there, there, there was always the fear. You never knew what was going to happen in one of the events. You never knew what the, the, professional would do. Uh, I think a lot of times I was more threatened to the fact that I had signed this contract and that if anything went wrong, my parents would be accountable for it and they would have to pay everything back. And there was a threat that they would take them to court and throw them in jail and all the kids would have to go into foster care. So there was this, this back fear of it. Um, and then there was a fear that if I did not do well, then I would be dropped. And then I would have to be responsible of paying what I had to pay back. So it was a constant, um, this like slow, steady stream of fear throughout. And as the, as the years went by, because this happened all four years of my high school, and as the years got went by, I started to find ways to try to regain my control within this group of professionals. Um, one of the ways was is if I could like come on to them, if that makes sense. I would, I would get in the car and I'd say, God, you're really, really attractive. And man, I, yeah. you're somebody I could see myself with for the rest of my life. And I would turn it. And what was really weird about this is that most of these men had children my age, boys my age. And this kind of freaked them out. So one or two things would happen. Either the event would be over with and I'd have to find my way home. Or... And of course, they never told any, they never told the other guys because then that looked bad in their group. So it was kind of like the locker room talk. If you had a date with a young kid, you, you, you exploited it and you talked about it. And the other one is it would become violent. And if it became violent, I knew that the, the, the situation would end quicker than if it was not violent. So I would just like basically take a deep breath and go with it. I, I found myself starting to count things and I still do this today. I would count the tiles. I would count how many times I saw the lights flash by if we were in a hotel. I, I, I so it helped me help remove myself from the situation. And the other thing that I learned really quickly is if I did not climax before they did, then the situation would be over quick too, because they weren't interested in me. They were only interested in taking care of what they needed. And so, and then I also told myself that this was not sex then if I didn't climax and then I was okay. And that's how I was able to start to create scenarios and, and logic in my head to get through everything all the time. Also felt like I left my body a lot. I, I, I had times when it would start to happen, especially if it got violent, that I would like find myself in the corner of the room looking down and just watching. And that was kind of an odd feeling. But it also removed me, and I didn't feel anything when I did that. Yeah, your body is attempting to dissociate in order to yeah. survive these terrible experiences. And I'm seeing just the way that you're the way that you're talking, 
you had to take a lot of agency and just find ways to cope with your situations where it was like, if I do this, it might be violent, but it might end sooner, which is a really dark and like terrible way to try and conceptualize the world, especially, you know, as a high schooler who is like at this very like pivotal moment of their life. Um, you had mentioned that this was going on all four years of your high school and as you're continuing on, how, how does this come to a conclusion? Like, how do you get out of this situation? How does this abuse stop for you? Like, where, where's that? So that's, that's really an interesting question. And, and I have to tell you, I started to plan my exit that I thought I was, I'll call it plan my exit, is that I, when I started to, to apply for universities, I, I was looking for the furthest place I could go. And um, there were three that I was really interested, Stanford, of course, then there was University of California, Irvine, and then there was the University of Hawaii. And I thought that if I could go to these schools, I would get away from all the professionals because they wanted me to go to Ohio State University where everything was kind of and um, I, I did. I applied. I, I was turned down at uh, uh, Stanford, which crushed me. But I got into the Irvine and into uh, the University of Hawaii. But I knew that I couldn't uh, really afford Hawaii. So I went to Irvine and I, I got an academic and an athletic scholarship. So I thought that I was all taken care of. But what I didn't know is that my mother had been telling them where I was going and they were still paying for so many things. They paid for my housing. They paid. So they were still had me in the wraps, which I didn't know. And then while I was at, at, at the university, I, um, I didn't, I had not had any help. I did not get any professional help to deal with what had happened through my high school years. So I kind of repeated certain things, behaviors and a grad student started following me and, um, I somehow upset this grad student by ignoring him. And the next thing I know, I woke up in the wooded area of school and I had to go to the medical center because he had, he had, he got to me. He found me and uh, basically raped me. And here's where I ended up going. And I got really, really sick because I, I couldn't comprehend in my head that I went through four years of this with these professionals and being passed all around. And this was just one person and it broke me. And so I, I got really sick again. And um, the next thing I know, I have a flight going back to Ohio. What had happened is that the medical team had called my parents, told them. My mother called the lawyer. The lawyer called the hospital where I was at. They got all the information. And the next thing I know, he flew me back home, put me right back in the center of it. So I was back in that whole cycle again. And then what happened is I went to a school in the area where I was living and there was a dance teacher there and she pulled me aside and said, meet me in the office. I went in and she had just, you know, started teaching there and she was a New York dancer, Broadway and all this stuff. And she looked at me and she says, I know something's wrong. Tell me I could see it in your eyes. And she worked with me and I finally was able to trust her and get the story out to her. She was the one that started the whole ball of getting me away from these people. When I was in LA going to school at Irvine, I had, um, I was cast on General Hospital, the soap opera. And so what she did is she called the casting directors and said, hey, could you take this kid back? Can you give him extra work so he has income? Then she helped with them, with the casting director. They found a place for me to live. And then they silently actually got me on a plane. And not, my mother didn't know where I was. No one knew where I went. And that's how it all started to unravel. And I got away from it. Wow, so your mom didn't know where you were. She must have been 
distraught at that and and uh but but you were just trying to get away from all of these this this ring of people that were doing these horrific things in in this was all in ohio that these people were doing this because people think of this as only going on in some place like california hollywood or something right. this this was actually in middle america ohio so um so did they ever so how how did you go about telling your mom uh, where you were and and uh prevent these guys from finding you again well, I think what happened really, and I don't know the answers to all this, so uh, I, I did eventually reach out to her on, on a phone call and she said, don't let anyone know where you are, they're looking for you. And so that was the first time I heard her say that there was this thing happening. And I think it was also her epiphany that she realized that she was a part of something that she didn't want to acknowledge. And I think this was her way to also try to protect me. And so she literally told them she did, had, had no idea where, where I was, although she did speak to me and that I was okay. And that's all they knew. And so that's how that whole thing kind of unraveled. And um, again, it's kind of ironic that I run from Ohio, where I'm being trafficked, to LA, into the Hollywood scene. But weren't so you afraid that they were going to... Another... I'm sorry, weren't you afraid they were going to see you on General Hospital and oh, kind of did. figure it out? Oh, they did. Well, they did, and they finally did, yes. And um, but they never at that point. I think they realized that I was gone, and I, they 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 let me go. Um, it wasn't until years later that I had run into some other boys who were a part of this cycle, and I I just that's when a lot of the guilt came into me because I felt like I should have said something. I should have gone to somebody because I could have helped these other people, and I did not, and I I, I still feel guilty about that. I think, Chamika, you touched on something that I think resonated with me deeply. You said this is going on through high school. You thought you had gotten out of the situation and it kind of plays itself again. And I can only imagine how difficult of an emotion that is to deal with. You know, you think you had gotten to a different place and it happens again and you're back in now, you know, basically back in your own state. Can you kind of walk me through a little bit about what you were feeling and how did you like come to terms with those feelings at all if you did? at all i think i'm still dealing with coming to terms to what it feels because it it shows up a lot you mm -hmm. know it, it will show up while i'm working it'll show up with relationship it shows up everywhere i think the way that i started to realize that something was really really wrong that this was not normal because you got to understand this was all normalized for me mm -hmm. this was my way of going to the olympics and that's what i thought i thought i was just paying a price a small price to be the elite athlete that i was and again, I, I did travel the world. I, I I won gold medals. I everything. It was like it was working. The system was working. And I think that what happened is that I had convinced myself so well through high school that that's what protected me. So I created this false self of of who I was and everything. And these were just things that I had to deal with when I thought that I was free from them. And I was in California going to the university there. When the incident happened with the grad student, then I took that on as that this is my fault. If this happened before, I'm creating it and I'm recreating it again. And that, I think, was the thing that was so devastating. And what happened after that is that I started to spiral thinking that I wasn't good enough. All I was good for was a toy. I, I was never going to amount to anything. No one was really talking to me about if I was smart or not, even though I had a 4.0 and 
in, in, in high school. And I, and when I went to um, the university, I was on scholarships. I, I saw all that, but I never, it never really registered that that meant that I could be smart. And um, I started second guessing everything that I was never going to make it unless I had someone else to help me. There's a whole big thing today, even when money has transpired between me for the job I've done, is it good enough? Um, or and, and I went through a lot of period when I was doing like general hospital and all my children, I would take that money and I would get rid of it as quickly as I could. Because if I didn't have it, then it wasn't mine. And it, it just this constant reiteration of what happened. And in Crack Surface, the, the second book, you'd start seeing what happened when I went back to LA. And then I have another book coming out. It's called Broken Surface, which is all about my experiences for how I put myself back into abusive situations. Why trying to become an actor in LA? And it, it, it's just this constant reiteration. And so basically what I kept telling myself, I was not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. This is all I'm ever going to be good for. I should just be lucky. I should count my stars. I should be grateful for all this. And those are things that I I, I still hold on to today. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. All of these things that you're talking about, all these emotions, these feelings, the guilt, the shame, the not feeling good enough, uh, they're, I think they, they are common among all of us, it's particularly male survivors. And, and I think that, um, you know, it's horrific that this happens with males and females. But it's uh, it's a little different with males, isn't it? It's a uh, it's a little there's there's a there's a little bit of different situations about us being able to deal with these things when they're happening to us. Can you go into that a little bit? How it's how how it was different or more difficult in some ways uh, by being a man. Well, I can do the best that I can because I've never been a woman. So I just just. Uh... I kind of de deflect on that just to take a break there. Yeah, it is true. And I, I think it, it goes back to um, as a teenager, I think one of the other things that I really freaked out about was that my body responded when I didn't want it to. I would be in these situations and my body was responding because of the touching and whatever was going on. And and I didn't know how to stop it. The fear. I, I, I mean, I, I Dr. Har Harper Hopper, I'm sorry, said that fear can cause, you know, erections. Things like this is just normal. But in me, I, I thought this was what I was supposed to be. And so I struggled a lot with my sexual orientation. So that in itself created a lot of questioning. But our society is also so, you know, there, there's the right way and the wrong way to be a, a real man. You know, a real man would fight back. A real man would not be raped. A real man, you know, all these these stipulations and beliefs that we're surrounded with as children, real men don't have emotions, real, you know, we all these laws that we have, and you can't talk about it. And if you did talk about it, you were a wuss, or you were a pansy, or you were weak. And so I really struggled with all of that, especially after trying to tell my mother, and having her turn me down and basically say, you're lying to me, um, is really was detrimental to my mind state. Uh, I do remember that I tried to find, uh, find ways to indicate so that someone would ask me because I, I signed this contract. I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. I could not go to say, you, Craig, if you were my teacher, I could not go to you and say, this is happening to me. But if I did an indicator that you would come and say, all right, John Michael, what's going on? I had to respect the teacher and tell. Then I was safe. Then I could get that out there. 
So I started doing things. I, I was one of these kids who always had to be impeccably dressed. If I got dirt on my shirt or anywhere, I had to go home and change. I just couldn't be dirty. And so I decided that I'd wear the same outfit for the whole week. And I thought, this is going to get someone's attention. Someone's going to ask me what's wrong. No one did. And then the other thing that I thought I'd do is I'm not going to shower. And I, again, I was a kid that would take two or three showers a day because I could not stand the chlorine on me from practices. And I can remember my mom overhearing my mom telling someone, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, it must be his teenage rebellion years. He's in the pool all the time. So he's 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 got to be clean. So let's not worry about it. Felt like that failed. And then the final thing that I really tried was uh, I, I would try to drop the F-bomb as loud as I could. And I was one of those kids that if I cussed, everybody laughed because it just didn't fit my personality. And I, I would scream it out in the middle of the hallways at school or in class. And not one teacher asked me out, you know, asked me to come up to speak to them or talk to me after class. So I felt like all these indicators were failing. And I felt like there was no one to talk to. So all of this, you know, toxic masculinity, this anxiety of being a male and all this stuff was just wrapped around everything. And so I basically became a prisoner within myself. I think I can very much relate to, you know, so much of what you're talking about, you know, this like constant self-doubt that you find yourself facing where you're just like, I'm not good enough, even though people will be like, what are you talking about? You are legit literally amazing at everything that you do because you push yourself and you're like, I push myself because I'm scared and because I don't want to fail and I don't want people to see me as a failure. But yet somehow at the same time, we also hold this belief of, I want someone to notice. And you're almost like sending out these feelers of, hey, who's noticing what I'm putting out right now? And who's going to pay attention to what is going on? Because I think for many of us survivors, one of the things we struggle with is, does someone care if I tell them? Especially as males, we, we really, I find myself doubting that all the time of, is someone going to care even if I speak up? And having just right. that tiny, tiny, tiny morsel of someone saying, hey, is everything okay? Goes, I think, such a long way, especially um, for male survivors. And so I just want to thank you for sharing all of that. I think a lot of us can really relate to all of those feelings and just being able to see, oh, like the ways in which I act out of my pain are not abnormal. They are the normal response to have. Me acting out of my pain whatever way that comes out, that is a valid response to have in order to try and seek help. Um, so you're noticing yourself trying to get all these things to happen. You're trying to get people to notice, you know, but at this point, you're still relatively silent about your abuse and mm -hmm. what is happening. And so I'm sure this is a very big moment in your story where you're saying, I'm turning in a corner, I'm breaking my silence, and I'm going to talk about what happened to me. And just kind of walk us through that sure yes well it, it took a very long time i will tell you that uh i had uh you know my acting career i had all this other stuff and then i went back to school and got my education degree and i became a teacher at, at a high school and it was during one of my you know um my second year i was teaching i taught sophomores and a young sophomore boy came into my classroom and he shared with me that he was gay and that he had a boyfriend. And I and I was trying to figure out, why are you telling me this? Because I, I really don't care because I have no data. I don't know what's going on. So unless you tell me, I won't know. And he basically told me that his boyfriend was older. And I asked him how much older. And he said he was 35. And all of a sudden, the first red flag came flying up in my face. And I went, 
oh, and, and and is your mom all right with this? And he said, oh, yeah, mom and my grandma are cool with it because he pays for the groceries and the bills. And I tell you, I, I couldn't breathe. I I, I think I, every, <laughs> everything just left. And I, I told him that I was going to have to report it because, you know, we have to do that. And I went to the assistant principal and I and I told her and she says, oh, yeah, we know about this. And there's nothing we could do because the mother and the grandmother are supported. And then she looked at me and she said, and by the way, he has a history of this. And I remember asking her, I said, so you're not going to do anything? And she goes, we can't do anything. It's 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 out of our hands. And I said, but are you going to report this? She says, fine, I'll, I'll make a report that you said this. And I said, OK. And then I realized that I didn't want to be there anymore. And so I decided that I was going to resign. But in the meantime, all of a sudden, I felt like the Pandora's box had opened. I realized that I was talking to myself, basically. That's the age I was when this was happening. And so everything started to fly up. Everything started to happen. And I and I spiraled really quickly. I got really depressed. And I got to the point that I felt like there was no way out. And I, I wrote a letter to my partner of 18 years at the time. And I said goodbye to our two Boston Terriers. And I, I went into the garage and I started to call. And of course, as I was sitting there, um, you know, you'd start having all these thoughts. And all of a sudden I had this, this urge to get out of the car, turn the car off and get back in the house. And I did. And when, when I got in the house, I fell on the floor and I, and I cried. One of those really, really ugly, snotty cries. And I was exhausted. And I finally said to myself, I'm going to break my silence. I, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to share that this has happened to me. And so then I realized that I would do a TED Talk. And I broke my silence on stage in front of thousands of people. And then I wrote the two books. And they all came out about the same time. And that was my first experience of sharing what had happened. I realized that I was having an, an uphill battle because of the white male privilege aspect that I carried, that this never happens to these type of people. And nobody, and I, and I felt people would not believe me. And what really was interesting was that after the TED Talk, the people who I thought were closest to me, the friends, the people I hung out with, all alienated me. And I, was I felt like I was standing there alone. And yet there was this whole new group of people that were coming in and surrounding me and supporting me and cheerleading me. And at the point, I, I didn't see how valuable those people were. I just saw that the others had left. But I think that's one of the things as a survivor, I was constantly dealing with because being passed around, you're passed to one person and then you think, oh, okay, if this is going to happen, I hope I can stay with this one person. No. They get tired of you and they're passing you on to somebody else so they can try something else. And that is just like this whole feeling of not ever being good enough. And I felt like my friends reiterated that to me and, and it was scary. And, and I will say that this group of professionals were very tight and they protected each other. After I got into the circle, I guess you would say, there was one major doctor that I had to see all the time. And he was from Ohio State University. And I would have to be taken to Ohio State, even if I had an ear infection, whatever it was, and he took care of me. But when we were in the office, that's when he would abuse me. And they would leave me with him for weeks and our weekends. And so he was the most consistent of all the people that I was trafficked with. And um, now there's this whole lawsuit with Ohio State and this doctor for because he was the only doctor for 14 varsity sports at Ohio State University. 
And my case has been denied three times because I was not a student of Ohio State University during this time. I was a high school student. And Ohio State is ignoring the fact that teenagers were brought onto campus and abused because that would open up a whole new can of worms. So I, I, I guess, does that help explain a little bit what was happening yeah. there? How many years after, because the average uh, the average age for males to come forward is about 25 years. Uh, was it how many years after the abuse is, is when you broke your silence? And... 25 years, yeah. 25 years. I was told that my statute of limitation was gone. Um, and yet, just recently, they have turned that over so that they can look into more situations. So that was a victory in a way. But yeah, it was it was way past the time. And, and your abuse took place. It wasn't just these professionals. It was your coach. It was this. This. Did you did, have you ever named them, or uh, what's happened to them since this? They should all be in jail. What? Yes. What? What is the recourse for this? Is there any recourse, and and are they still around there, and are they still doing this? <laughs> well, I don't know about all that. I, I do know many of them have passed away. The doctor at Ohio State has. Um, the coach, we've been looking for him. We have not heard anything about him. He was approached by the lawyer and was brought into the situation and um, was paid extra money to pay more attention to me on top of the salary, salary that he was getting to coach. Um, and he really befriended me and he really made me feel like he was my sole survivor, savior type of thing. He, he told me that he understood and he really played that side of me. And um, I believed him and 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 he he allowed this relationship kind of thing to happen. And he said he never felt this way with a guy and that nobody needs can to ever find out because, you know, nobody would uh, believe us. And and if anybody did find out, nobody would ever want to coach you again because this is just, you know, bad. So don't tell anybody. So uh, he so I it's so weird is that I think back about it. He became. I thought we were in a relationship and he would take me overnights to Ohio state and I'd spend the time with him or we'd go to meets together. And I spent, you know, I'd be in the hotel with him. And so I never thought of anything more about that. And I never, never took charges against that because at that point I thought that I allowed it to happen. Even though there was a power struggle there, he was the coach. He was older than I was. I still felt that I was responsible for what happened. And uh, and we haven't found him since. Yeah, that's a difficult place to be. And I think, again, like a lot of survivors can relate to the feeling where you feel responsible for what has happened to you. And you feel like everything is my fault. There's no amount of accountability for any outside forces, for malicious acts, from other people, from people who are just willing to leave users and forego their moral compass. And that is a difficult feeling to sit with especially when it is something so terrible. And um, I just, I think wanted to reiterate, like it's a, it's a very real feeling. And I think many of us share that. Um, you know, you're talking about this where you're breaking your silence, all these things are happening, your lawyers and your coaches, and how, how are you transitioning on from this part of your life? You know, you're growing a little bit older. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? Well, I think, and I think both of you, uh, probably are aware of this too, that the healing journey is a lifetime experience. I, I don't yes, know if I will ever be completely healed. And I always question those who tell me that they're healed, they're done. 
And I, and I, and I, because I don't think that's ever going to happen for me because there are certain little things that trigger me every day. And um, I'm learning how to react and respond to these triggers instead of letting them dictate to me what, what's happening. I think the older I get also, I start to put more distance between me and what really happened. And I can, I can take moments to objectively look back. Uh, I think when I had the opportunity to speak about uh, the, the hockey player Beach and his situation, and I was able to, to really get to look what happened to his life. And I also think that when I became a board member for, with the Army of Survivors, and it, which, which was started by three women who were abused by Nasser, and being able to sit and talk with them and understand what their experience was and comparing that to mine and seeing the similarities and also seeing the differences really has started to open up my mind. And I think um, journaling has helped a lot. And I say the first thing that really, besides speaking out with the TED Talk and that, the other thing that really changed my life was when I was introduced to the Self-Talk Institute. I've always had issues with therapy because some therapists were part of this professional group that I went to. And so every time I'd go into a office, there were triggers going on. And I realized I didn't want to be there. So I would cry as hard as I could to figure out what they wanted and I would answer what they needed and what they wanted so I could get out of there. And so they never really went beyond anything further. And when I went to the Self-Talk Institute, I found that I could take where I am right now. I didn't have to go back and relive the abuse, but where's my mind right now? What are the negative self-talks that I'm saying right now? And start to identify those and then start to work on changing the thought pattern there and creating positive neuron pathways in my brain, which would allow me to go forward in my life from this point. Then when I'm ready, I could go back and start looking about what happened back there. And I think that's one of the reasons I was so moved because I saw such quick changes within me that I, I decided to become a certified coach and um, trainer. And I wanna help other survivors to understand that the self that they created during the abuse is not their true self. This was the tools and the, the method that they used to get through and survive that, and that they no longer need that now. And to slowly start on, you know, like an onion, peeling those layers back to find the truth of who you are, and, and that you could still have the life you want if you allow yourself to do this. And to escape, I don't want to say escape, that's not the right word, but to acknowledge that we might be stuck in victimhoodism. Is that a word, victimhoodism? But being a victim. Because that's where I felt safe. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's what I knew. That's what was normal for me. And I would actually repeat myself and put myself back into that position of being that victim because I knew how to deal with it. And to learn that that was just a coping mechanism and my real true self was wanting to be the person who makes my own decisions and have my own power back. And that's what helped me start to see. And so that I thought, okay, I can help others now. Yeah, um, I, I want to, and, and that's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, a good in in joining together and helping others, and this is why Lord and I do this program. And I know you've been a a, a, a participant in our almost every single one, I think, if not every single one. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of um, good in getting together as men, and that's that's why we form the men of 
of uh, uh, Voices Beyond Assault in the first place. I, I want to talk about the Army of Survivors because Nasser was the the doctor who molested you and these women. And right, is that correct? So when I'm no, no, I was not oh. a Nasser survivor. Oh, okay. I right. I'm a trial survivor. All right, so. Um, as I was saying, the the what what have you learned though uh, through your work? Because there's you've done a lot of great work. You've done studies and and you've a lot of writings and uh, what have you learned about predators and uh, how they how they operate and and what what makes what makes them do what they do? Well, I I think that's the million dollar question why they do what they do. And I, I, I'm not sure that we will ever come up with the exact answer to that because I think it's so individual for each one of them who become predators. Uh, there are studies that show that a lot of predators were sexually abused as children themselves. And one of the reasons that they target a certain age group is that's the age that they were abused. And so that's where they can relate to. And, um, and there's a lot of theories and a lot of ideas like that. Um, I think that one of the things that I feel confident about is the grooming process and how it worked for me and how slow it was and how it became normalized and how everything was justified before it ever got into the next level. And when we went to the next level, it was just the natural next step. And that's how it was presented. And that's how I was able to comprehend it. And today we look at it and it's different because a lot of the grooming is happening on the internet. And I call it the predatorial internet grooming, which I also call PIG, P-I-G. And these, these, these predators, there's like over half a million trying to reach out to connect with children daily through games, social medias, chat rooms. And they, they can use AI and this grooming method to develop a persona that is a lie. So a lot of young people are thinking that they're talking to somebody their same age. And the FBI came out with a warning that young men are the prime you know, targets because it's easier to manipulate them and to blackmail them. And there's a less chance that they all report. Or young, young girls, when they find out that the predator is not who they say, find a voice thanks to the me too movement and you know the nasa thing and all this stuff they're they're finding their voice to be able to say hey this is happening to me online males still are not doing that and and we're learning that a lot of the males who have committed suicide were being groomed online and and this whole grooming process gets the young person to send pictures and it starts out as a simple like headshot and then they start to become explicit. And then what these predators do will take these pictures and post them on other porn hubs. So these images are out there. And then they come back and they tell, again, I'm generalizing all this. Then they're coming back to the, the child and saying, hey, did you see your picture over here? And the kid will go look and there he is or she is on this porn hub. And then they'll say, I want more pictures. And if the kids resist, then they start threatening it. And they start telling them that they're going to go to their parents. Then they're going to let everybody know that they're on this porn site, blah, 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 whatever they can do. Even to the point that they, they, they threaten to kill their pet. Because by this time, the kid has already told them where they live, what school they go to. They, they have built a relationship. And, and, and the child is exposed. 
And there's so much going on now. And, you know, we, we, we've seen a lot with certain uh, social media sites that are, are still defending some of these people who are putting the CSAMs out there, which is child sexual abuse material, and are, are giving them rights back to where they want to be. And, you know, again, and then you look at um, another one. I don't know if I can say their names, but there's another online social um, platform media that has been brought up on charges that they are the, these predators are now hiring children to pass the child abuse material on to other people. And they figure that they cannot convict the child. So they're like little mules. And they're, and, they're, and they're sending these things out and they're getting paid. These predators are paying these children to do this. But it looks like it's coming from the child to another child. It's 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 mind warped. So that's that's kind of the things that I'm working on now and focusing on. And to speak out and to support the army of survivors, because a lot of these young women were abused with their parents in the in the office room with them. Nasser would have his back to them while he's manipulating and abusing the daughter or the girl, the gymnast, and telling the parents what medical process he's, he is using. So when they would go out and the girl would say something to the parents, the, the parents would say, oh, no, no, that's just the medical thing that he had to do. He had to do that to help you. And, you know, and it's, it's my dying wish is to get parents to realize that this is not true. If your child says something, please check it out. Because only 15% of parents know what the children are doing online. And, and a lot of people, a lot of parents in America are saying, oh, my child's up in his room or her room and I'm oh, safe. They're okay. They're not safe. They're online talking to these predators. Yeah, just recently I read a story of a, of a boy in high school who was a part of the football team. And yes. exactly the same thing as you described happened to him. And he ended up uh, taking his life as a result of being blackmailed over the pictures that, that he had given, thinking he was giving them to a, a girl his age. Right. And, and Craig, it's really crazy. I did a study and I, I, I shared that story and his image, because if you go and look at who he is, blonde hair, blue eyed football player, you know, all American kid. And I also put up a picture of a young girl who was of a mix background and do you want to know everyone went to the boy and wanted to know more about the boy than the girl which mm. blew my mind I, I had never seen something like that and i only assumed that they wanted to know that because they both committed suicide they're no longer with us but they went to the boy and i, I had never figured out the reasoning behind that maybe do you think it was because they were identified with him identifying with him or was it a morbid curiosity because they didn't think that it happened to boys or I don't know. I mean, I've heard this from right. other people too. I've heard this from, from other people we've interviewed on this program where they say uh, there's, there's sometimes people are just so interested or, or just curious about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's also the, the whole thing with stats you know, you know, you you read one place, it's one in one in six males. Another place, it's one in four males. Another place, it's one in twenty-four or one in thirteen. And it, it's just interesting that um, we can always have another di discussion about that. Is how how with even within the survivor group, these numbers are changing constantly. 
And um, I, I work with a lot of women survivors and there is a resistance of having those numbers get too close to each other. You know, even the female survivors want to keep the male survivors out at some far distance. So the story does not get messed up with their story. And I think once people start realizing and looking at this and looking into sports, because sports is where a lot of this is happening and the numbers are really skewed, that we would, if we were able to talk to all the athletes, we would find that the numbers between the abuse between men and women are closer than they ever expected. And there may be even more abuse for males because it's just the breeding ground for it. The locker room talks, the, the you know, the team sports, all this stuff. What happens in the locker room stays there. And that's the the belief that they have. I think anytime anyone dives into a, a particular field or area and you uncover a lot of the facade that is up there, you start to realize, hey, there's a lot of darkness that is lying underneath the surface that is disguised as just the way things are done or just the team culture. And I think you do a good job of bringing to light, like, hey, like equipping and uh, teaching your children and individuals of, hey, you need to be able to set boundaries for yourself. And also we want to be very aware and try to protect you as well. I think our two sides of a coin that we're constantly trying to equip children and keep kids safe is uh, quite the challenge. And uh, kind of leading off of that, I guess, you know, there's obviously the parent side where I want to keep my child safe. I want to listen to them when they bring something up to me. I want to be able to be attentive to my children. And I guess I'm wondering, like, do you have a message for kids who are maybe in like situations where they feel a little stuck and like, hey, can I give you some equipping or some tools to be like, this is what you can do for yourself? Right, right. There, there's two sides of that I like to address if it's okay. And mm -hmm. um, I think with the child situation, if you feel like something's wrong and it doesn't fit with you or it goes against what you feel inside, although you think it's normalized, ask about it. Talk to someone. Um, sometimes it could be with other other athletes. And I know this is a problem because if I bring up Ohio State University, I remember um, being at the diving practice and I got to dive with the, you know, practice with the, the U university team. And I would hear them talk about the doctor. And they, his nickname was Dr. Dick, Dr. Thumbs, Dr. Whatever, Dr. Feelgood. And they would joke about it. And what was sad about that to me now I reflect back at it is that the, these were young men trying to comprehend and understand what was going on. And I remember I talked to my coach about it and he says, oh, don't worry about it. That, that happens to everybody. It's just part of it and you have to go through it. It's just part of being on the team. It doesn't mean anything and blah, 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 blah. So again, even from the authorities down, they were normalizing this doctor's actions. But I knew inside of myself that it didn't feel right, but I didn't know how to express that out, out to people. Again, that's why I did indicators. That's why I tried to communicate ways that I could get someone to talk to me. And I really, truly believe that children want someone to know. No matter how hard it is or how difficult it is, they want to know and they want someone else to know. They want to talk about it. They just don't know how, because I don't think our, our brains are fully developed, especially for males until mid to late 20s. So how do we wrap our head around this? How do we, how do we, how do we put in words what's going on? We don't know. And so there's that, that whole thing that we want, we want to know and we want someone else to know so that we can understand it. Um, and I think there is the other side and my mother, I, I remember talking with my mother once 
And she finally told me that she had a feeling that something was happening, but she didn't want to know that she chose to ignore it. But there was this instinct and her, her message to other parents is listen to your instinct. It's telling you this for a reason. And she feels guilty that she didn't follow through because she feels that the mothers have a sixth sense about these things and that they know intuitively that something's not right. And I think that if we can keep communications between parents and children open, there, 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 there's going to be, you know, tough times because, you know, teenagers are going to go through that whole mom and dad's please. But the point is, is if you have that communication started from a young age, they're going to likely tell you more than if you don't have. Them. And um, I, I, I think as much as our society and our movies like to act like, you know, teenagers don't want their parents to know anything. And I think that's also just built on this myth. I think children's children really want you to know because they don't know what to do with it. They don't have any idea. And I, I think communication is the number one. And the other thing is, I have this, this theory that when something is happening, even if they are being groomed online, the light in their eyes seem to darken. And I think parents, if they're attuned with their child and watching them in a part of their lives, they're gonna see that that light or that dimness has come in. Ask about it. Also, watch the body language. Be present enough to see they're trying to tell you something. They're trying to indicate something to you because this is too big for them. And that's why if they feel that there's no other way out, that's why a lot of times they think that they have to take their life. As we've seen with the football players, we've seen so many times, they don't know how to handle it. They need the help. Yeah, I think that that everything you say about uh, trying to tell your parents and just trying to get noticed, and you don't really necessarily want to say it, you want them to notice. You know, I used to be downstairs just rocking in a rocking chair for hours at a time by myself, just wanting someone to say something. And, and even when I, 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 at 12 years old, tried to hang myself, I just wanted to get attention. I didn't want to kill myself. I wanted attention, and it just it just didn't happen. You talked about going to um to which i i thought was interesting uh you you're going to hollywood for safety and you and you know when people think of hollywood they don't really think of that as a safe place for young boys either with Corey feldman Corey haim james safechuck wade robson who we've had on this show yes. all of these guys and, and their mothers were groomed as well um all of these people did not find that safety in hollywood um i'm glad you found it then but uh did you see a prevalence of 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 this kind of sexual abuse predator behavior in hollywood yeah oh yeah totally um i i, I was walking back into the lion's den which is where i felt comfortable and i think the thing that attracted me to hollywood was the fact that when I was acting, I could be I could be those other parts of me that I wasn't able to express as myself. You know, um, it, it was funny because uh, I, I would get compared sometimes to Montgomery Clift or James Dean, and they would say you, you you're so pensive and you're so. It, it was just my internal side come, trying to come out, trying to let go of that thing, and I, I ended up playing a lot of those type of characters, and um, and I I was good at it because that's where I was. Um, many times I will tell you that, uh, 
there I, I did a film and uh during the audition they asked me to strip down to my underwear and to um do the do, do the reading in my underwear because they needed to see my body and I, I thought okay this is normal i'll do this yeah boom well when the film came out you know like dvds and everything the audition uh, is right there at the end of the film there i am in my in my nakedness which i thought was only going to be between us me and the and the um the casting director no and then i know i had another experience where i was going in for um oh my goodness this film that i wanted so bad by patricia now warren the front runner i don't know if you've read that book ever it was way ahead of its time and they, they tried to make it a film several times i was brought in a couple of times and i remember at one point they were doing the films the scene between me and the coach the harlan and they were filming it, and all of a sudden, it turned into this event. And this casting director had his way. And it, it's on film somewhere. And you know, you sit there and you don't think about it at the time, and then you're walking away, and you're like, what just happened? I found myself putting myself back into those situations where I was not in control, someone else was. And the casting couch was real. And I think one of the things that I got known as in Hollywood was the ice prince. They, that, that's what they called me because I got very, very closed off and you couldn't get near me. And um, if anyone ever came on to me, I was really like standoffish. And, and that hurt my career. Yeah, that is, uh, again, I think we continue to see there's a certain amount of comfort in what you know and what is familiar. Yeah. And trying to knock your body out of that rhythm to be like, hey, there is a different realm of possibility that lies out there. I think, like you said, we do sometimes require someone else's help and assistance. I think none of us as people are islands. I think all of us men have this self-aggrandized image of like, I, I did it by myself. I am the only person who can do it. And the reality is like, none of us can do it on our own. And being able to yeah. accept that help and admit to that, I think is a really, really big part of that healing journey that we go through. Um, you know, I, I wanna kind of touch upon, you had mentioned this earlier, this is something that I personally really enjoy doing, but you had mentioned journaling as a method of healing, which I think is just a great mode for a lot of men and just anybody in general to heal. Could you touch a little bit about what you journal about, how you journal. Um, I think there tends to be a lot of questions around, well, what do I write about or how do I start this? And I think just being able to hear from someone who is on that journey, I think would be very, very helpful for everyone. Yes, definitely. Uh, I want to say one thing real quick before I tell you that what you all are doing here is so healing. By bringing up voices and and, and talking and, and, and talking between each other and, and, and realizing that it's okay to share what we're what we're talking about and that is so healing so that's really really important okay. and the work that you all are doing is incredible i've watched so many of these and i walk away thinking thank god because i feel so much better even though i'm devastated by what happened to certain people and what they went through i don't feel so alone anymore and that's so thank you for that um with the situation with journaling, I, I always journaled. I remember journaling as a kid, writing all the time. And 
it wasn't until I started to go to, I did go to one therapist who was also a life coach and she really pushed the writing, the journaling. And this was before I, I wrote the two books. And so the journals became what I was experiencing, writing anything down, it didn't matter. She also handed me a book called The Artist Way. And that was, then they have morning pages where you write three pages every morning about anything. Um, you just start writing, you don't stop, you don't care, grammar, nothing, it doesn't matter what it is, you just, what's ever on your head, you just write it down on the paper. And the goal is to get three pages. That's all you had to do. And sometimes it's gibberish, sometimes you, all of a sudden something will come through, and it's just a matter of getting that writing on the paper. And that really started to free things up for me. And that started to help me to understand things. Uh, today, as I journal every morning, uh, I, I'll be reading a certain book. Um, I, I went through this whole phase of reading everything I can get my hands on with Lewis Howes. And everything would be like, he would hit something and I would like, oh, that would open something up. Um, I'm right now reading uh, Renee Brown's book called The Braving the Wilderness. And there's little things that she talks about and all of a sudden it is opening up new things that I have not talked about or I hit hidden. I would just write it down. It doesn't have to be in detail, just a thought down. And then I could go back if I want and add to it. And it's really interesting how this journey starts coming and starts, it's like a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle that are piecing things together. And in my, my, my journey of healing and going through this, and even with my talks, there are new things that come out every time I talk with people. Anytime I present, a new thought has come up. And that's exciting because that gets me closer to who I truly am. And, and journaling is my secret safe place that I could put these secrets in and not worry about anyone ever finding them. And if they do, probably I'm no longer here. And that's fine because, you know, it's all truth. It's my truth. And it builds in my confidence of trusting myself. And I think that's the biggest thing that journaling does for me if to trust me, because I still struggle with my story because I keep thinking this really never happened, you know, because that's that, that, that whole imposter syndrome that comes in. And, but I also have too many journals that say, this is real, this is true. And evidence that prove it, letters, you know, the contract with the lawyer, I have a copy. Why would this happen? You know, um, so it, it's my truth base. So I think it's interesting, John Michael, we talked about this, that you and I and Laura would each have about two decades between each of us uh, in, in when our abuse happened. And and, and that's, that's quite amazing because not only do we all share a lot of the same effects that it had, and, and, and we share a lot of the, the healing and the, the doubts and the guilt and the shame and all of that, it's still there. But what has changed is the ability for men to to come forward. I mean, when I was abused, there was no way it was ever going to happen. When you were abused, still wasn't going to happen. It was a little, hopefully, easier for Lord. I'm not going to speak for him. But it is getting a little better. Men's voices are starting to be heard, I think, probably in the last three, four, five years, we've seen an, an incredible change. Why is that? And how do we keep that happening? And how do we move this forward? So it's, 
it's just it, it is it was it me too i think that helped actually the women's me too but what what are your opinions on on how we keep that moving forward and 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 um you know get that to be just so that people are very free to to talk about it, especially men right i and again i don't want to speak for laurel um because i think he has his own voice and it's incredible but I do think that this new generation that's coming up are finally saying no more. And they're finally saying this is enough, you know, and they're, they're the ones that are, you know, yeah, I, I think the older guys have started to break the ground to get that ability to voice things out. And I, I think what I, what we have done, Craig, is that we have broken ground on that and allowing them to have that safe space. But they have also evolved in a way that we weren't. You know, and um, the, the the social media and the, all this technology is forcing them into another new realm. And I think there's they're dealing with struggles that we never experienced. You know, the online grooming is just as effective as in-person grooming. And I think what's happening is that there are more men starting to stand up and more younger men. You know, uh, Perry Powers is another one who has stood up and said, this is happening, people. Listen. And I think these, the bravery of this is allowing us to hear more. And I and I, I do think that we have to be thankful for the Me Too movement and the uh, U.S. gymnastics females and all these people stepping up and saying things because as men, we're starting to hear that and we recognize similarities. And I think we're slowly starting to be able to voice ourselves, but we're still stuck in this whole patriarchal society that men in power do not want to hear this. And I don't know if it's because they have some secret background, maybe they were abused or maybe they were a part of the abuse or whatever, but they don't want that light to be shined. And so they're still struggling to keep it quiet, especially in sports. And they just are not willing to budge and I think the more um, NFL players that come forward, the like Dwight Hicks and, you know, all these people are there stepping forward and say, this happened to me too. And I, I think that's slowly starting to get the ground to open up. But I think people are scared. So what does this mean? If, if men are being abused, then what is that saying about our whole society? And I think that keeps people afraid to talk. And I think I think the younger generations are are a little braver in a way and said, I don't care what you think of me. This is what what I'm going to say. And this is what's happening. And again, I don't want to put words in Laurel's mouth, but I think that's what's happening. I think they're starting to say, we got to stop this. Yeah. Um, you took the words out of my mouth. So thank you. <laughs> uh, I can definitely speak just very briefly on my own personal convictions, I was very scared, you know, trying to share my story. And I was very concerned. And I thought, well, what if no one cares what I have to say? You know, what if it doesn't matter? And I was to myself, the thing that I thought of was the alternative to me not saying anything is much, much more scary than the alternative of me speaking up and telling the truth. And that scares me. And so that was a big catalyst for me. And also the recognition that, hey, People before me have busted down walls that I don't have to break and I can be grateful for that and I can try to pass that along. And that was something that I thought about a lot when I was sharing my story where I said, I want to be able to say with good faith and confidence that I did my best to lay the groundwork for the next generation behind me to be able to 
speak their story and to admit to themselves, hey, predecessors before us have done the work for us so that we wouldn't have to. Because this, just telling your story and admitting to yourself this thing happened is so unbelievably difficult. And the more that we as a community can come together, bind together and say, your story is my story and we'll all work for each other, I think just makes the world a little bit more beautiful in that way. And even if it's in a small way, I think speaking our truth does make a big, big difference. Um, we, sorry, that was all <laughs> a little bit of a tangent. Well, I mean, you're you're such an inspiration and both of you are to me because <laughs> I mean, one of the biggest things that I, uh, when I came forward and broke my science, it took me way more than 25 years, I'll tell you that. And it, it, it was, it was, um, you know, feeling so alone for so long, and and you guys, when when I learned that people uh, are willing to come forward and talk about it, it's just so uh, incredibly helpful. When I watched Leaving Neverland the first time and saw that these guys come forward and, and against a, a, an icon, you know, and and incredible things that they had to endure based on that is just was so helpful and so powerful. And that's why we do this, right? That's why we have this program. That's why we're doing this. And I just, you know, I just can't thank you guys enough because I don't want people to have to wait 25 years to to deal with what happened to them. That's that's a it, it takes, you know, a long time to recover, as you said, a whole lifetime of recovery, but your life is better once you break that silence, once you start healing and you start that that road to recover, your life does get better and you do start to to um you know to heal and and you may not be completely healed ever, but you are at least further along than if you never told anybody before at all. Perfectly said. Yeah. And and I think I think uh, the younger generation who are coming forward and speaking are such an inspiration for the older generation to be able to come up forward as well, because we're watching these young brave men coming up and saying these stories, and we're like, oh my god, that was my story when I was that age, or, and 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 it allows us to support them because once someone steps forward and you can identify and connect with them, you're willing to step forward and link arms. So I think that's what we're starting to see. I think we're starting to see these things happen. There's still so many things going on in our nation that we watch, you know, the Kevin Spacey's situation and and that how that all played out just seems so unreal to me because, you know, the 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 the, the kid couldn't remember all the details. And so they're you know, and yet Spacey couldn't remember all the details, but he's the, you know, he's okay. We're going to quit him. You said but it doesn't erase. Up. It doesn't erase what happened. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that we're starting to understand. You know, I think, you know, we carry this with us stamped on our, our souls for the rest of our lives. And it affects everything and how we, you know, um, act in society and how we do what we do. And, and I think we're starting to realize that this is a problem. It's just not a one-time deal and it's over with and everybody's forgiven. It's also the whole thing like, you know, everybody was shocked with Nasser being going, you know, going to prison. And then they expected that all these girls had their, you know, their revenge and that they should be okay. But what they failed to realize is that these young women are now just beginning their healing journey. And they're just starting to understand the implications of what has gone through, that they have gone through. And all the challenges that are still waiting for them ahead, ahead in their life. 
because each part of their life is going to be affected by that moment that this man took to take care of his desire. And and I think that's 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 the commonality between men and and women yeah. uh, survivors is we all have these things like you know I was running from from place to place and running from job to job based on on feeling unsafe or threatened and i didn't realize what was going on until you know you actually start to to start to accept what happened to you and start to heal and and it also has a, a terrible effect not just on what you're doing publicly but what you're doing internally your your relationships and your your view is on on sexuality and it's just you know you you just uh you are marred from from having a a quote normal um relationships in in a lot of ways especially before you start the healing process how how did did you see that as well it, oh oh definitely i i i see it affecting everything in my in, in my life where i have to make a decision i mean even just going to to vote you know there's moments that i'm like oh my god this is affecting the way i i look at things this is the way i interpret things based on what happened you know uh in my situation it all was you know at that time when i was i never got to experience going out on a date with someone my age uh because i started diving at 12 and i you know was by 14 i was going to the junior olympics so, so that was unnormal un and it put me in a different different bracket or whatever you want to say a group of people and so I, 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 everything became about a sport. And so dating was out picture. There was no time because I was practicing in the morning and at night and going to school and then all this stuff. And then when the, the abuse started happening, besides going to school and practice, I was going on these events, I call them, with older people. And I, I never got that chance to experiment what would it be like to be with someone my age. What would it be like to, you know, hold her hand walking down the hallway? Um, and it, it just was, it's its something I feel like I've missed. And that has really spilled over into everything I do. You know, um, jobs, like you said, there were moments I would, I would go from job to job to job to job. And one of the things acting was so good was that the job would end. It would only be, it would only go so far. And then, you know, you have closing night. Oh, thank God. Nobody got to know anything about me, really. So then I could go to the next job and, and it'd be everything everybody wanted me to be and never find out who I truly was. And I think that's extremely exhausting. And I found that even when I was doing like corporate business, I would only go to a certain point and then I had to find another job because I don't, I didn't know if they were going to find out about me. And, and it was like, I was always running, like you were saying, and it, it's just everything i mean sometimes going to the grocery store do i do i buy almond milk or do i buy you know and i know that sounds stupid but it really plays effect on what decisions i make absolutely i think just trying to run through that process of how do i be a person again how do i find myself in this healing is such a journey and, and who am i and yeah. what do i like yeah. Because for so long, you you were living someone else's life. You yeah. were doing what you thought everybody else wanted you to do. Mm -hmm. You're so hyper-attuned to your environment that you forget to neglect your personal environment. Perfectly said, yes. Yeah, and I think that's such a true struggle where you finally sit alone with yourself and you're like, I don't even know what I would do if I had two hours to myself. <laughs> 
exactly, exactly. And then you run, or, or, you know, and you, you're trying to find that place that feels comfortable. And yet, you know, that the old comfort is no longer good. You, you, I think you instinctually know that, mm -hmm. that that's not where you want to go. And it's impeding everything that you want. But the new area is so different. And there's no certainty there and it's scary and it's it's frightening and you don't know what to do and sometimes i think i revert back to where i know where i feel comfortable and i i think i know what i'm doing and i really don't it's a facade it's a, an illusion none of us know what we're doing we're all just trying to figure it out we're, we're figuring it out we're all just trying to help our inner child figure things out in the world um i, I think you touched on something that I've felt many a time in my life where you're doing something, you think you know what you're doing, and then you start to get scared and you start to doubt mm -hmm. yourself. And you think to yourself, am I even on the right path? Am I doing the right thing? And when you start to waver in those convictions, what would you tell survivors who are trying to heal in that process? And like, how do you even cope with that feeling of, I, I just don't know what I'm doing right now? I feel like I do that every day, actually. It's one of those things I feel every morning sometimes I'll do something and um, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? I think it's really one of those things. And what I, if I was coaching someone else, I would say, okay, you had that feeling of going forward or you had the choice. It becomes down to a choice. I want to give the power back to you as, as it is a choice. So I choose to stay where I feel comfortable it's not the best place for me, but I know what to expect and I know how to play the game. Or do I go over here where everything is new and different? It could help me. It can move me forward. It could be a very positive thing, but it's scary because I don't know how to play the game. And I think you have to have the choice or the power to make the choice. And, and as soon as you start realizing that you do have that choice, then it becomes a different animal in a way. Then you start realizing, oh, if I stay here, this is what I'm going to expect. But that could be something totally different and could help me and heal me. And then you make that choice. I don't think you can be told what to do. I think people, when they're told, especially survivors, really press the brakes. And I've seen this a lot with um, faith-based organizations who have wanted to help women who are trafficked. They bring them in and then start telling them what they need to do and how to do it. And my question to them is, these these people have been programmed and groomed to be trafficked. You're taking them in and you're reprogramming them to be what you think that they need to be. Of course, they're going to do everything that you tell them because they've already been brainwashed in a way. They're going to you're doing the same thing to them. And then there's been a lot of allegations where these faith based groups are also preparing to put them back out into a trafficking situation. And so that's that's where we have to find our own truth and we have to find our own power of knowing that it's okay and brave to stand alone. And we may feel like we are alone, but if that's my truth, it's like it's like that Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou's statement about the tree growing along the river is to stand still and not go in the flow with the river. And it's just this whole strong image about being able to be who you are and be truthful to yourself. It's going to get you further than going with the flow. Um, John Michael, one of our uh, viewers here today is is wondering about your case uh, with Ohio State. And, and um, they were uh, abused in another school. How, how do you go about, uh, and, and the school knew, 
uh, and didn't take action. How how does this person go about getting that case? You know, getting some kind of awareness and 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 rec, you know restitution I, I, or something. Are they interested in moving forward with the case and putting an analysis? I think so. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm guessing that from from what I remember. I um, reach out to a lawyer. You, could, I think that would be the first step, and that's basically what I did. Um, I I went through several lawyers first before I ended up with the one that I had because they were doing a group of athletes from Ohio State, and they and they were able to put me in with that. Um, and that one, it made it a little simpler and easier because it was a group of us. But it's also very difficult because every time my case was denied, it would get picked up again. I would have to go back in and go through the whole question and answers completely all over from the beginning. Even though that these lawyers knew my story, it was like almost as if they were um, preparing my answers to what I said first. Did I cross the T? Did I dot the I the same way? Did I, did I present it and sound the same way as I did before? Because then it could also be changed and, and the story could be turned around and it, and it's frustrating. So I would say that I would also um, try to find someone on campus who there, there's usually a group that will listen to you and they will take your statement and they will also help guide you into the right way because each school has its unique way of about doing it with Title IX and all this stuff now that's changing. Um, but don't give up. And I, I would also, um, whatever school it is, if you want to contact me, I'm happy to help you and, and get you some direction. Uh, but it's each each school is different. Although they're supposed to be under the same umbrella, they all have their own way of handling things. Yeah, and interestingly enough, though, usually when somebody comes forward with something, they're not the only ones. They're not the Correct. only ones. So that that would there's there's there is power numbers for sure, but usually don't get those numbers until the first person is brave enough to come forward. And sometimes, and um, this could be a drastic thing, is to uh, reach out to the press, the media to get your story out there. And that sometimes can also validate that your story is now out in the media and that can cause a movement forward. Um. Oh my god, I think that is just a great piece of advice. I think what you said is usually when you come forward, you're not the only one. And there are a lot of other people. Um you I want to kind of ask you perhaps maybe a little bit of a thought here. Like what what message would you like to leave to survivors who are here and you know and just out there in, in general? Just give us like a quick little three-minute monologue. Okay, okay, I'll try to do that. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I just want to share that, you know, we've all gone through some type of trauma as we were growing up and as we go through our lives, that's human. Uh, depending on that trauma, it's how we put the meaning to it, which causes us to create the self-talk that we have within ourselves. I also believe that every survivor can heal and can find their own voice again and get to back to their life that they wanted and, and to their true life. And it just takes work. The first thing you have to do is to admit that it happened. You have to be real with yourself and you have to acknowledge it and you have to say, this is what happened. 
And then that's where the journaling can come in and help you out because that is where you can put your thoughts. And if you go back and you look at the journals, you'll start seeing a theme. You'll start seeing things start to piece together and you start seeing that the story will come out. And that's because you're writing subconsciously and you're just getting it out and it's not important. And that's where it starts flowing through. Also say get professional help, whichever is best for you. Different methods for different people. We're all unique. We're all not a cookie cutter. What works for one person is not going to work for another. So you have to find that for yourself. That also shows that you are taking decision and you're creating your own decisions, which is the power that you're giving back to yourself. So everything is going to come back to you finding your power and your voice and your healing. And the only way to do that is that you started and you find the way to do it for yourself. But do not neglect getting the professional help because if you don't get the professional help like I did, you're going to repeat and you're going to find yourself back in a situation which could be worse than the situation you were in first because that's what you know and that's what your subconscious is bringing back to you is saying, this is safe over here. And what we need to do is break that cycle and realize that that is not the truth. The truth is over here. So what's next for you, John, Michael? You, you're, you're, you're running as fast as you can to help everybody. What's, what's, what's on your agenda? There's, a, there's some things that I, I'm really excited about doing. I, I'm really reaching out to a lot of people about the predatory internet grooming to get that voice out there. And I'm working with some people on the dark web. And, you know, I've reached out to the FBI and that stuff and trying to get that working out and get that program to parents so that parents and children can really understand the issues because it's like 90% of people don't even understand all the issues that this entails because the, the, the verbiage that, that people are using on the internet doesn't make sense because one says this and another says this. So we're trying to combine everything and put it together so there is a common language. So parents and ch children can understand the importance of this issue. I'm also working with the New Jersey Coalition to End um, human trafficking. We're doing a whole educational program called the Human Trafficking One-on-One, -on -one, where we're taking it out into high into schools, middle, middle school and high schools, to help teachers understand and what to look for, and so that they can be that person that if a child is given an indicator, will ask, you know, and to help children see that there is hope and that they're being heard and believed. And I believe that's one of the things that I think we need to take away is that. Children want to be heard and they want to be believed. This with us stamped on our, our souls for the rest of our lives. And it affects everything in how we, you know, um, act in society and how we do what we do. And, and I think we're starting to realize that this is a problem. It's just not a one-time deal and it's over with and everybody's forgiven. It's also the whole thing like, you know, everybody was shocked with Nasser being going, you know, going to prison. And then they expected that all these girls had their, you know, their revenge and that they should be okay. But what they failed to realize is that these young women are now just beginning their healing journey. And they're just starting to understand the implications of what has gone through, that they have gone through, and all the challenges that are still waiting for them ahead, ahead in their life. Because each part of their life is going to be affected by that moment that this man took to take care of his desire. And and I think that's 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 the commonality between men and and women yeah. uh survivors is we all have these things like you know i was running from 
from place to place and running from job to job based on on feeling unsafe or threatened and i didn't realize what was going on until you know you actually start to to start to accept what happened to you and start to heal and and it also has a a terrible effect not just on what you're doing publicly but what you're doing internally your your relationships and your your view as on on sexuality and it's just you know you you just uh you are marred from from having a a quote normal um relationships in in a lot of ways especially before you start the healing process how how did did you see that as well it Oh, oh, definitely. I, I, I see it affecting everything in my in, in my life where I have to make a decision. I mean, even just going to, to vote, you know, there's moments that I'm like, oh, my God, this is affecting the way I, I look at things. This is the way I interpret things based on what happened. You know, uh, in my situation, it all was, you know, at that time when I was I never got to experience going out on a date with someone my age. Because uh, I started diving at twelve, and I, you know, was by fourteen, I was going to the Junior Olympics, so, so that was unnormal, and it put me in a different, different bracket or whatever you want to say, a group of people, and so I, I, I everything became about a sport, and so dating was out picture. There was no time because I was practicing in the morning and at night, and going to school, and then all this stuff, and then when the the abuse started happening. Besides going to school and practice, I was going on these events, I call them, with older people. And I, I never got that chance to experiment what would it be like to be with someone my age? What would it be like to, you know, hold her hand walking down the hallway? Um, and it, it just was, it's, it's something I feel like I've missed. And that has really spilled over into everything I do. You know, um, jobs. Like you said, there were moments I would I would go from job to job to job to job, and one of the things acting was so good was that the job would end. It would only be it would only go so far, and then you know you have closing night. Oh, thank God, nobody got to know anything about me really. So then I could go to the next job and and it'd be everything everybody wanted me to be, and never find out who I truly was. And I think that's extremely exhausting. And I found that even when I was doing like corporate business. I would only go to a certain point and then I had to find another job because I don't I didn't know if they were going to find out about me. And and it was like I was always running like you were saying and it, it's just affects everything. I mean sometimes going to the grocery store do I do I buy almond milk or do I buy you know and I know that sounds stupid but it really plays effect on what decisions I make. Absolutely. I think just trying to run through that process of how do I be a person again? How do I find myself in this healing is such a journey. And, and who am I? And yeah. what do I like? Yeah. Because for so long, you're, you were living someone else's life. You yeah. are doing what you thought everybody else wanted you to do. Mm -hmm. You're so hyper attuned to your environment that you forget to neglect your personal environment. Perfectly said. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's such a true struggle where you finally sit alone with yourself and you're like, I don't even know what I would do if I had two hours to myself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then you run, or, or, you know, and you, you're trying to find that place that feels comfortable. And yet you know that the old comfort is no longer good. You, you, I think you instinctually know that, mm -hmm. that that's not where you want to go. And it's impeding everything that you want. 
but the new area is so different and there's no certainty there and it's scary and it's it's frightening and you don't know what to do and sometimes i think i revert back to where i know where i feel comfortable and i i think i know what i'm doing and i really don't it's a facade it's an illusion none of us know what we're doing we're all just trying to figure it out we're We're, figuring it out we're all just trying to help our inner child figure things out in the world um i I think you touched on something that i've felt many a time in my life where you're doing something you think you know what you're doing and then you start to get scared and you start to doubt Mm -hmm. yourself and you think to yourself am i even on the right path am i doing the right thing and when you start to waver in those convictions what would you tell survivors who are trying to heal in that process and like, how do you even cope with that feeling of, I, I just don't know what I'm doing right now? I, I feel like I do that every day, actually. It's <laughs> one of those things I feel every morning sometimes I'll do something and um, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? I think it's really one of those things. And what I, if I was coaching someone else, I would say, okay, you had that feeling of going forward or you had the choice. It's, it becomes down to a choice. I want to give the power back to you as, as it is a choice. So I choose to stay where I feel comfortable. It's not the best place for me, but I know what to expect and I know how to play the game. Or do I go over here where everything is new and different? It could help me. It can move me forward. It could be a very positive thing, but it's scary because I don't know how to play the game. And I think you have to have the choice or the power to make the choice. And, and as soon as you start realizing that you do have that choice, then it becomes a different animal in a way. Then you start realizing, oh, if I stay here, this is what I'm going to expect. But that could be something totally different and could help me and heal me. And then you make that choice. I don't think you can be told what to do. I think people, when they're told, especially survivors, really press the brakes. And I've seen this a lot with um Faith-based organizations who have wanted to help women who are trafficked, they bring them in and then start telling them what they need to do and how to do it. And my question to them is, these these people have been programmed and groomed to be trafficked. You're taking them in and you're reprogramming them to be what you think that they need to be. Of course, they're going to do everything that you tell them because they've already been brainwashed in a way. They're going to, you're doing the same thing to them. And then there's been a lot of allegations where these faith-based groups are also preparing to put them back out into a trafficking situation. And so that's that's where we have to find our own truth and we have to find our own power of knowing that it's okay and brave to stand alone. And we may feel like we are alone, but if that's my truth, it's like it's like that Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou's statement about the tree growing along the river is to stand still and not go in the flow with the river. And it's just this whole strong image about being able to be who you are and be truthful to yourself. It's going to get you further than going with the flow. Um, John Michael, one of our uh, viewers here today is is wondering about your case uh, with Ohio State. And, and um, they were... Uh, abused in another school. How, how do you go about? Uh, and and the school knew it uh, didn't take action. How how does this person go about getting that case? You know, getting some kind of awareness and 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 rec, you know restitution I, I, or something. 
are they interested in moving forward with the case and putting in an analysis? I think so. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm guessing that from from what I remember. I um, reach out to a lawyer. You, could, I think that would be the first step, and that's basically what I did. Um, I I went through several lawyers first before I ended up with the one that I had because they were doing a group of athletes from Ohio State, and they and they were able to put me in with that. Um, and that one, it made it a little simpler and easier because it was a group of us. But it's also very difficult because every time my case was denied, it would get picked up again. I would have to go back in and go through the whole question and answers completely all over from the beginning. Even though that these lawyers knew my story, it was like almost as if they were um, preparing my answers to what I said first. Did I cross the T? Did I dot the I the same way? Did I did I present it and sound the same way as I did before? Because then it could also be changed and and the story could be turned around and it and it's frustrating. So I would say that I would also um, try to find someone on campus who there there's usually a group that will listen to you and they will take your statement and they will also help guide you into the right way because each school has its unique way of about doing it with title nine and all this stuff now that's changing um but don't give up and i i would also um whatever school it is if you want to contact me i'm happy to help you and and get you some direction uh but it's each each school is different although they're supposed to be under the same umbrella they all have their own way of handling things yeah and interestingly enough though usually when somebody comes forward with something they're not the only ones they're not the Correct. only ones. So that that would there's there's there is power numbers for sure, but you usually don't get those numbers until the first person is brave enough to come forward. And sometimes, and um this could be a drastic thing, is to uh reach out to the press, the media to get your story out there. And that sometimes can also validate that your story is now out in the media and that can cause a movement forward. Um, oh my god I think that is just a great piece of advice I think what you said is usually when you come forward you're not the only one and there are a lot of other people um, you I want to kind of ask you perhaps maybe a little bit of a thought here like what what message would you like to leave survivors who are here and you know and just out there in, in general just give us like a quick little three minute monologue <laughs> Okay. Okay. I'll try to do that. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I just want to share that, you know, we've all gone through some type of trauma as we were growing up. And as we go through our lives, that's human. Uh, depending on that trauma, it's how we put the meaning to it, which causes us to create the self-talk that we have within ourselves. I also believe that every survivor can heal and can find their own voice again and get to back to their life that they wanted and, and to their true life. And it just takes work. The first thing you have to do is to admit that it happened. You have to be real with yourself and you have to acknowledge it and you have to say, this is what happened. And then that's where the journaling can come in and help you out because that is where you can put your thoughts. And if you go back and you look at the journals, you'll start seeing a theme. You'll start seeing things start to piece together and you start seeing that the story will come out. And that's because you're writing subconsciously and you're just getting it out and it's not important. And that's where it starts flowing through. 
also say get professional help, whichever is best for you. Different methods for different people. We're all unique. We're all not a cookie cutter. What works for one person is not going to work for another. So you have to find that for yourself. That also shows that you are taking decision and you're creating your own decisions, which is the power that you're giving back to yourself. So everything is going to come back to you finding your power and your voice and your healing. And the only way to do that is that you started and you find the way to do it for yourself. But do not neglect getting the professional help, because if you don't get the professional help like I did, you're going to repeat and you're going to find yourself back in a situation which could be worse than the situation you were in first, because that's what you know. And that's what your subconscious is bringing back to you is saying, this is safe over here. And what we need to do is break that cycle and realize that that is not the truth. The truth is over here. So what's next for you, John, Michael? You, you're, you're, you're running as fast as you can to help everybody. What's, what's, what's on your agenda? There's, a, there's some things that I, I'm really excited about doing. I, I'm really reaching out to a lot of people about the predatory internet grooming to get that voice out there. And I'm working with some people on the dark web. And, you know, I've reached out to the FBI and that stuff and trying to get that working out and get that program to parents so that parents and children can really understand the issues because it's like 90% of people don't even understand all the issues that this entails because the, the, the verbiage that, that people are using on the internet doesn't make sense because one says this and another says this. So we're trying to combine everything and put it together so there is a common language. So parents and ch children can understand the importance of this issue. I'm also working with the New Jersey Coalition to End um, human trafficking. We're doing a whole educational program called the Human Trafficking One-on-One, -on -one, where we're taking it out into high into schools, middle, middle school and high schools, to help teachers understand and what to look for, and so that they can be that person that if a child is given an indicator, will ask, you know, and to help children see that there is hope and that they're being heard and believed. And I believe that's one of the things that I think we need to take away is that. Children want to be heard and they want to be believed. Uh, what is it? Only like 5% ever make up a story about sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And it, that's even kind of high from what I understand. So I think the more that we're able to hear and listen and get support by believing them, it's such a healing step forward. Yeah, I think you hit it right there more tools that we can cut. It just gives them that healing step forward. And so, uh, John Michael, thank you so much for joining our program today. It has honestly been such a pleasure for sharing your story of triumph, for all your advice, for all your emotions and just rawness of expressing, this is how I felt about everything that has gone on. And I think a lot of us, I know for me, multiple times I was like, I felt the exact same way. And I know that feeling so well. And it's so refreshing to hear it coming out from someone else or coming out from someone else. And I know your story has truly been an inspiration to all of us who have attended this program today. Yeah, and John, Michael, I hope that you'll join us again. Uh, I, I do think that we just touched the surface and and the when we, when we just started having a discussion, it was great. I think maybe we have a program where we just open up to a lot of men and, and just talk to each other and, and maybe it's recorded, maybe it's not, but I think it would, would do a lot of good. Thanks to all of you who joined us today. We, we hope you found this discussion as enlightening, comforting, and, and helpful with your healing process as Lorward and I did.
Absolutely. And we just want to thank you once again for your support for attending these programs, uh, for being in support of organizations like Voices Beyond Assault. And I hope that you all will go out and check out John Michael's work and his body of books, programs, and different programs that he's part of. And it's your courage that gives us all the strength. Thank you so much, everyone. We'd like to thank you for joining us today for this important discussion. For more information about this program and other programs from the Men of Voices Beyond Assault, please go to our website at www.voicesbeyondassault.org. If you found this podcast helpful, and we hope you did, please let us know by liking it below. And to all of you survivors out there, remember, you are not alone. And together, we heal.